truth will set you free. One, two, three, four. Hey guys, today we're going to talk about ADHD. If you haven't been living under a rock, then you'll know at the moment we're seeing so many people come forward and say that they either suspect they have ADHD or that they've actually received the diagnosis for it. In Australia, the PBS put out their stats. There are now more adults than children being prescribed ADHD medication and the total number of prescriptions issued has doubled, doubled in the last decade. Okay, so what is ADHD? So for quite a while, there was this general consensus about a theory that ADHD had something to do with dysfunction in your neurotransmitters, particularly dopamine and norepinephrine or noradrenaline, same thing. Now, depending on what source you're reading, there's going to be different attitudes. Some sources are going to have this very much fixed mindset of it's in the brain, it's dopamine, it's not our fault, we have less dopamine and you need medication and that's it. And I was actually quite pleased because in my latest research, a lot more sources reflect this notion and idea that it's likely an array of different causes that are creating ADHD. They can't tell you what they are, but they know that they might exist. So guys, translation, what that really means, ADHD is a cluster of symptoms with no biomarker, meaning you can't go and get a blood test. You can't go get some definitive test that's going to tell you, yeah, you have ADHD. So fun fact, I received an ADHD diagnosis in the past. And the way that came about was I've always, even in school, felt like it was really difficult for me to sit down in a whole period and concentrate. Like I'd always make up that I needed to go to the bathroom or like I would make up that I had a singing lesson. Sorry, teachers, if you're listening, it was always like that for me. And then it gradually got worse when I was in university and my level of focus, oh my goodness, to this day, to this day, I have not been to a full week of class at university, not once. Oh my gosh, horrid. So I finally felt motivated after I felt like I dealt with my anxiety that, hey, what is going on? Maybe I actually do have ADHD. It kind of makes sense. So I went and got a referral, saw a lovely psychiatrist who diagnosed me. He diagnosed me through mostly self-reported things. So I had to fill out questionnaires. He interviewed me. He looked at some of my school reports. And I actually did quite well in school and apparently a common presentation for some women with high functioning ADHD is that they'll do really well in school and then they'll struggle in uni. So I fit that box and yeah, I had this ADHD diagnosis. Now, it's important to note that I no longer identify as someone who has ADHD and even when I received the diagnosis, there was some relief because sometimes it's nice to be like, hey, there's a name for this thing that you're experiencing. But I just felt like, how do we know for sure though? You haven't actually told me what's going on, why my focus is bad. We've just sort of slapped a label on it. And so very quickly after that, I was like, well, I'm back to square one. I'm not going to take this medication. So what am I going to do? And this is what I'd love you guys to think about with me today. Let's think about all the different reasons or as many as we can as to why we might be struggling with focus motivation, feeling like a monkey mind. 
And like really, truly, guys, I used to cry about this. I used to be like, even when I'm driving, my focus is so bad. Don't freak out if you're ever in the car with me. (laughs) It's much, much better. But I was just like, why am I so scattered? Why? Okay, so this is where I started. And I think it's a really good place to start. Can ADHD be related to trauma? Okay, let's start there. So I'm really across attachment theory. And in my research, I came across this incredible study of children. I think they're about 15 months old. And what these researchers did was they took children from healthy homes and they took children from adverse homes, meaning homes where they'd either been removed or there was a mentally ill parent, whatever, something that was not conducive for the child's development. Okay. And they put the babies in a room and they placed in front of these babies red blocks. And the objective was to compare how babies from healthy homes interacted and played with these red blocks compared to children from adverse homes. So children who were from these healthy homes with available parents who responded to the child, you know, somewhat predictably mirrored their emotions, were present. These children were able to grab the blocks and play with them. And they sustained a level of engagement with those blocks really, really well. They weren't looking around the room. They weren't interested in anything else. They weren't looking at the experimenters and their faces and sort of trying to assess what's going on. They just were really intrigued with a task and and had a real sense of exploration about them. Then you observe how children that grew up in those adverse environments played and interacted with those blocks. Now, when we say adverse environments, some of these kids have been removed from the home. Some of them have faced, you know, physical neglect. They're anorexic. But here's what's key. An adverse environment can be a parent who's mentally ill. It can be a dad who is shouting at the mom or vice versa. It can be a mom who perhaps has attachment disorder and she can't mirror her child's emotions. Perhaps she's completely despondent when her child is trying to interact with her. Okay, so it can be quite subtle. I don't want you to think, oh, like I wasn't removed from my home, so I wasn't possibly traumatized. You have to keep in mind humans are so easily traumatized because our nervous systems are so dependent on the people around us. Okay, so when those red cubes were placed in front of those babies, they were really task avoidant. They were not really interested they would sort of engage and then they would be checking their environment. They'd be looking around and really what it was displaying was a hypervigilance, okay? A hypervigilance about their environment. They're checking things. They're looking at people's faces. There were also a lot of the babies were exhibiting signs of anxiety. Oh, this killed me, guys. I literally had to go and cry. So it's quite overt, right? What we're seeing is that regulation in early development is deeply embedded in a child's relationship with others. When that is fractured or when that is not working as well as it should be and keeping in mind that attachment and sort of nervous system regulation is established at about uh, 15 months, I believe, in a child's life. So the first 15 months are really determinative of a child's attachment Uh, style that we start to see issues in development and for many that attachment is maintained well into adulthood unless they consciously heal that so this idea that perhaps this hypervigilance can be linked in with an attachment disorder of some kind 
or not even necessarily that, but this idea that some adverse event in the home interrupts a child's ability to focus on a task and to be engaged is pretty profound. So we actually can't say for sure whether these ADHD-like symptoms aren't caused from trauma. What we're seeing is that when there's a level of hypervigilance and there's nervous system dysregulation, that there's task avoidance and trouble sustaining focus, trouble engaging with a task. And it's completely possible that, again, this is sustained well into adulthood because one important thing to remember is that when you don't learn co-regulation with a healthy parent, when you're not taught how to manage your own nervous system, we stay with the nervous system that we had since childhood. Like you stay with the nervous system of a juvenile instead of having adopted and learning and getting that co-regulation from a healthy parent. So let's drive this point home even further. I don't know if you guys are familiar with ACE scores. It stands for Adverse Childhood Events. And it started, it came from the CDC Kaiser ACE study. So it's one of the largest investigations of childhood abuse and neglect and household challenges correlating to later life health and well-being. That's what this study was looking at. And it was conducted in 1995 to 97, and it had two huge waves of data collection, like literally over 17,000 health maintenance organization members got physical exams, completed confidential surveys regarding their experiences, their current health status, their behaviors. It was this really rigorous study. So here I have a statistic that compared to children with no ACEs, meaning no adverse childhood events, the odds of an ADHD diagnosis were 1.39, 1.92, and 2.72 times higher among children with one, two, and three or more ACEs, so more adverse childhood events. So how can this relate to you if you're experiencing ADHD-like symptoms? Are you hypervigilant? Do you have low-grade anxiety? Are you nervous about something? That is absolutely going to impact your focus. And even if it's not a temporal thing, even if you're not actually experiencing anxiety because of something that's happening right now in your life, if you're someone who grew up in a home where the environment was not ideal, where one of your parents was not secure, then it's absolutely possible that you've got this low grade or even high grade level of hypervigilance running in the background and that's impeding your ability to focus. A further mechanism that I can personally speak to that's not quite the same as hypervigilance is this idea of unconscious anxiety. Now, you're probably thinking, oh, okay, anxiety that's unconscious. It's a little more complicated than that. It's actually a clinically used term in ISTDP, Intensive Short-Term Dynamic Therapy. If you've listened to my other podcasts, you would have heard me speak about that a lot. And it's basically what occurs when we're avoiding our feelings in a clinical way. So we're using repression, disassociation, we're using all these different defense mechanisms to avoid feelings, whether it's sadness, happiness, grief, rage, it can be any emotion. And what happens is the anxiety comes in and blocks the rise of those feelings. And it's a very mechanical process. When you're in a room with an ISTDP psychologist, they will observe your bodily functions. They'll see, are you clenching your fist? Is your neck strained? Are your shoulders tight? This is an indication that there is anxiety 
when feelings start to rise. And that's an invitation to regulate that anxiety and then explore those feelings. Now, from personal experience, I had this low-grade anxiety running because I was, without knowing it, avoiding my feelings. The anxiety in and of itself was a defense mechanism against feeling. Because if I'm feeling anxious, then I'm not feeling sad, I'm not feeling angry. And those things at that point in time, it was quite uncomfortable for me. So I went to go see this awesome ISTDP psychologist thinking this is a last ditch attempt. Why am I a little anxious all the time? And let me tell you, my productivity, my focus, my motivation went from 10% to like 80%. I had weeks and weeks after each session of this intense clarity of a real inner peace because in session, I processed these feelings and the anxiety no longer needed to quote unquote protect me from experiencing these emotions, right? As I built that capacity. And I suspect many, many people from their conditioning, from their home environments. And again, if you've been in an adverse environment, you haven't learned nervous system regulation. And a part of nervous system regulation is just learning how to experience your emotions. If you didn't receive that type of education, then one defense mechanism you might be using is anxiety. Now, what occurs with anxiety? Poor focus, like again, that hypervigilance, you know, poor motivation because you're so fatigued from the adrenaline flooding your body. Many of the symptoms of anxiety or generalized anxiety disorder, say, are similar to, if not the same, as the symptoms of ADHD. Further to this point, what can happen with this unconscious anxiety is that, okay, the anxiety is its own defense mechanism, but then a defense against that anxiety is to numb. So it's to engage in those addictive behaviors of like excessive phone use, you know, binge watching Netflix, food, like using things to escape how you're feeling and using things to also escape that uh, experience of anxiety. So you can see how it's all intertwined. So personal experience, if you have repressed feelings, which by the way, it's very unconscious. You might be like, nah, I can feel my feelings. Okay. (laughs) Come sit down with me for five minutes and I'll tell you if you're feeling your feelings, right? So unconscious anxiety may be one piece of that ADHD-like symptom pie. Note, I'm not saying of your ADHD. (laughs) I'm saying ADHD-like symptoms. Um, It certainly was for me, and I suspect it's quite common. Uh, I mean, the world's pretty messed up, and the amount of people that grew up with healthy parents, not convinced. So the likelihood that you're avoiding your feelings, probably strong. Okay, let's transition into something that really excites me. Now we're going to talk about dopamine, deficit states, oversaturation of dopamine, and what might be happening there. Okay, guys, so this is pretty profound. When I was looking into my diet, I noticed that certain foods I found really difficult to stop eating. I noticed that I had this hormonal reaction, something deeply biological in me that desired to continue eating certain foods. And they were all your classic foods, like something really cheesy or like fries or chocolate. Okay. Something that was flooding my system with dopamine. Okay. I was getting that pleasure response. Now here's the thing. Every time we get a dopamine rush, our body will compensate. Homeostasis kicks in And there'll be a low that stops 
your system from being flooded with dopamine to restore this level of homeostasis, meaning back back to a neutral point. Now, if you're familiar with Dr. Huberman's work, he calls this uh, the pain-pleasure balance. And what this means is you would have heard it. What goes up must come down. So whenever we have a dopamine rush, we experience a low where our level of pain, our dopamine is lower than it was before we even engaged in that behavior that caused this reward. So it will peak and trough and then go back to baseline. But what's key here is that there is a point in time where after that reward, our dopamine has gone below baseline. So that's that feeling of after you do something you actually feel low. You probably notice after if you've been scrolling on Instagram or TikTok or after you like eat a chocolate bar, there's this point where you have this pitifulness feeling, you feel low. And that low can drive the motivation to seek that pleasure, that reward again, because you're in the low now. And the, the natural urge for our body is to compensate and get back up again, right? And so I noticed, particularly with food, I was very sensitive to this low. And this low would drive my dopamine-seeking behaviors like crazy. And I remember thinking, this is not a willpower thing. Something's happening to me. So I first started thinking, perhaps it's my blood sugar. Perhaps my blood sugar is lower than it was before I ate this food. And now I'm seeking more food of that same type to bring my blood sugar back up. And then I came across the role of dopamine in this system. And if you're interested in what I'm talking about, particularly with food, go listen to my episode with Dr. Abood Bakri. He's a general medicine doctor and he's also a resident in internal medicine. We talk about this a lot, about these counter-regulatory mechanisms that kick in when we experience the blood sugar low or dopamine low. So when I learned to wait, to just simply wait for my dopamine to return to baseline, when I simply did nothing, even though I wanted to have another piece of chocolate or scroll on my phone or go on Netflix, all I had to do was wait and then things went back to baseline and I felt better again. But when you fall into the trap of following the urge to seek more dopamine, you know what starts to happen? Let's say you don't wait. Let's say you get a reward, your dopamine gets high, then it crashes. And now in the crash, you're like, I want more, more, more. And you follow that urge and you get more dopamine and the same thing keeps happening. What happens is you've now oversaturated your system with dopamine. You've lost sensitivity to dopamine and you lose the sensitivity because of homeostasis. What happens is the more you're flooded with dopamine, your body kicks in these counter-regulatory mechanisms to reabsorb that dopamine to try and restore some level of homeostasis, but you end up feeling lower and lower and lower each time this happens. And this is known as a dopamine deficit state. And when I'm in a dopamine deficit state, I have all the symptoms of ADHD, poor focus, highly addictive behaviors, getting stuck in these loops, and also feeling quite low. And the way out, honestly, guys, the way out is to bore myself to death for a day or two, deprive myself and get back up to a place where I've got this healthy sensitivity to dopamine. Okay, this is pretty profound stuff. 
And if you think about it, guys, it's a pretty adaptive trait. Like as humans look back at caveman days, we needed this seeking behavior to motivate ourselves to go and get food or to procreate or whatever it was. But now we live in a society where we're oversaturated with rewards without effort. And that is the key. There's nothing wrong with reward, but a reward without much effort, example, scrolling on your phone, unhealthy food, this is where things get tricky. So do you see how your dopamine baseline lowers when you go straight for the pleasure without putting in effort, without there being this pain towards getting that reward? It'll eventually lower your dopamine baseline like we discussed with those addictive behaviors compared to this. I heard Dr. Huberman say that the level of reward we get is dependent on how much pain we endured. And not only that, the more pain we endure to get that reward, it will higher our dopamine baseline. So people think when you have a cold shower, you feel good because the actual cold water makes you feel good. Yeah, a little because of vagus nerve things and stuff like that, but The main driver of why you feel so elated after is because you just endured all this pain in the cold shower. And then once you come out, there's a reward, right? You're no longer in pain. You're no longer in discomfort. And here's what's so cool. Dr. Huberman explained that certain studies show that cold exposure can have the same increase in dopamine levels as cocaine, but here's the awesome part, without the corresponding drop below baseline, aka without that crash. And it actually strengthens that baseline. So my question to you would be, if you're experiencing ADHD-like symptoms, how much is your system flooded with rewards? How much are you avoiding discomfort? Are you hooked on your phone, hooked on something? It could be anything. But if you're hooked on something, then it's kind of an indication that you're stuck in this cycle of seeking pleasure without much of the pain. I would 100% start there. Just for an example, when I stopped eating certain foods that had me in this loop and when I developed my capacity to endure the discomfort after a dopamine high, oh my gosh, like the addictive behavior just completely vanished. So this brings me to neuroplasticity. These techniques that Dr. Huberman talks about, our ability to wait it out and not give in to that dopamine-seeking behavior, this is neuroplasticity. It's the brain's ability to create or alter its neural networks, essentially like completely rewire itself. And that's a sign of hope, guys. That's awesome. That's a relief. You do not want to be stuck with some nondescript thing and know that the only prospect for you is really to take stimulant medication. And lastly, to finish it off, a bit of an anecdote here. I always felt like I was weird because I couldn't quite fit into this like corporate structure of sit at your desk for eight hours a day or 10 hours a day and sustain your focus on this one boring task. Like if you're someone whose ADHD like symptoms manifest in a way that means you want to stay on your feet, you want to be outside or you're very creative or you have lots of ideas and you feel that that makes you scattered, but perhaps that's your personality. Perhaps that's your beautiful temperament. There's a label given to people with ADHD. It's neurodiverse. And I think about that and I go, but by what standard? Is it only diverse because it doesn't fit into like the work structure? 
it's is it because it's difficult for people with ADHD to do like normal capitalist jobs? Like what is it? You know, why are you necessarily the weird one? And I sort of started to understand this more in terms of my femininity. That might surprise you. But I realized that especially as a woman, for me, and this is going to be different for everyone, that my productivity comes in waves. My creative nature is not going to be expressed in the same way a masculine essence would be. So typically a masculine energy is, you know, ordered and it can perform well under pressure. My productivity, my desire for work looks very different than that of the masculine. So I like to be at home. I like to have sunlight. I don't want to be under pressure. I like to be able to sit up after 20 minutes and take breaks. And my productivity, my flow is going to change around not just my cycle, but around my life. Like if I have kids one day, my work's going to look different. It's going to flow in and out compared to a masculine. And don't forget the workforce is very masculinized. So if you're thinking I have ADHD and you're really noticing it in terms of your like work and career, perhaps the way that that environment is structured just doesn't fit with your temperament. It doesn't actually mean you have ADHD. Okay. And so maybe you can think about ways to create a work environment that's more suited to your own personal temperament. If you're interested in this, Stay tuned because my next episode is with a feminine coach and she talks a lot about feminine work in the most mind-blowing, nuanced way. Like this woman blows my mind. So stay tuned for the next episode because we're going to explore this. Okay, guys, if you got anything from this podcast, which I have no doubt you did, please share it with a friend. Please screenshot whatever app you're listening to this podcast on upload it to your Instagram, give me a tag. It really helps. And if you're not already, follow my podcast. And please, if you got something from today, I would love you to leave a review. And I have had a few of you lovely listeners asking if I'm still coaching. And I do have coaching available in January. So if you're a woman, I'm only working with women. That's my specialty. If you're a woman and you'd like to work with me, please reach out to me on Instagram and we can go from there. Alrighty, guys, have the best day. Go off into the world and do your thing and you will hear from me very soon.